Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Last week, we took the show on the road and taped a live discussion in Bisbee about the present and future health of the San Pedro River. Today, we bring you those conversations. The San Pedro River flows north from Mexico into southern Arizona, creating a rich and valuable riparian corridor to support many animals, including mammals like jaguar and millions of migrating birds. The river and its connected groundwater flows also support the nearby city of Sierra Vista and Fort Huachuca, plus other towns including Bisbee, Tombstone, and Huachuca City. The San Pedro is the last large free-flowing river in southern Arizona that, at least in part, flows year-round. But as water demands increase and the climate becomes hotter and drier, the river is increasingly at risk of drying up. We invited a panel of guests to join us at the Bisbee Royale Theater in front of a live audience. Our first panel featured Holly Richter, Arizona Water Projects Director for the Nature Conservancy, and Michael Bogan, an aquatic ecologist and professor at the U of A. Holly, can you give us a brief overview of the Nature Conservancy's work here in the San Pedro area? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, the Conservancy's been very active in the San Pedro watershed since the 1980s. And what brought us here was really the stunning biodiversity that's here. The, the fact that this is a place where, where all these different larger regions kind of collide. I mean, we have the Sonoran Desert colliding with the Chihuahuan Desert, and we have the Sierra Madre coming up from the south with some of the Rocky Mountain species from the north. All colliding here was just a real magnet for conservation and the protection of those species by the Nature Conservancy. Michael, you've worked on the San Pedro in the past and other uh, river systems. What characteristics of the San Pedro make it unique? Well, the fact that the San Pedro still has water in it um, definitely makes it unique. So we, uh, we study aquatic ecology, we study the species that need water and live in the water year round, and it gets harder and harder each year to find places um, that support aquatic species. So the San Pedro, the fact that it flows year round, uh, it's natural flow and there are no dams or large diversion structures on it, uh, make it a really unique system to study from an aquatic ecology standpoint. For people who have not been lucky enough to come down and see the San Pedro, you say it flows year-round. It's a river. Maybe people think of the Colorado running through the Grand Canyon um, or the Mississippi if they're former East Coasters like myself. What's the San Pedro look like? It's a much smaller system than people might be accustomed to. Uh, during the dry season, you can basically jump across portions of the San Pedro. And it's also spatially interrupted. So we think of rivers as, as kind of continuously flowing from top to bottom. But in the San Pedro in the dry season, it'll break up and there'll be dry segments and wet segments that are flowing and then dry segments again. Um, so during the dry season, it's, it's small and it's fragmented, but it's the only water around, so it's really important. And then of course, as, as um, folks know, we have the monsoon season which will dramatically increase the flows and turn it into a river closer to the size of the Mississippi River. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just add as a riparian ecologist that around that wonderful aquatic system is this amazing riparian forest and floodplain. It's just a, it's a migratory corridor that really is, as I mentioned, it's of, of hemispheric importance because it allows species to move from Central and South America up to North America. Three million birds every year use it to move 
along their, their um, annual migration path. And it's that terrestrial forest, which can be cottonwood willow in some places, and, and mesquite bosque in others, and floodplain grasslands in other areas, and these wetlands, that southwestern wetlands that we call cienegas, and this whole mosaic of habitats that make it so rich for the species that live there all year round, as well as the migratory birds. And there are a lot of mammals in there also. It's not just birds. A lot of people come down to southern Arizona to see birds, of course, uh, especially in the winter, but it's not just birds. Yeah, it's one of the richest uh, land mammal assemblages in North America, 80 species of mammals. It's one of the few places in North America where uh, in the basin we can see jaguar and we can see ocelot and we can see mountain lion and we can see bobcat. and It's pretty phenomenal on any kind of a meter you want to look at. And Michael, just so we know what's under the water, how does the San Pedro as a river uh, do for aquatic animals? Right, so the San Pedro has a, has a pretty rich assemblage of aquatic animals. A lot of what we study is down at the base of the food chain, the aquatic invertebrates and the aquatic insects. Um, and so there's about 250 species that we know of from the San Pedro. There's a lot more than that because unlike the mammals which are well studied, uh, aquatic insects, there's a lot of species that haven't been described yet. So it's almost certain there's new and undescribed species that are living in San Pedro. Those aquatic insects uh, spend most of their lives underwater, but then they have a short stage where they come out into the terrestrial environment on land and fly around and look for mates and lay their eggs back in the water. And it's really that emergence from the water that draws in and feeds a lot of the um, birds and riparian mammals and things that we've been talking about. So the, the aquatic food web and the terrestrial, the riparian food webs are completely linked. It's, we, we call it a, a tangled web. Let's get a little bit uh, into the nitty gritty here. Holly, the Cochise Conservation and Recharge Network. Mm -hmm. It's something if you start reading about the San Pedro, you hear about, maybe not everybody knows what it is. What is it? It's a collaborative effort here locally to enhance the water supply for both local communities as well as the flowing river. Um, and really, this is almost a, a larger story that started probably 20 years ago in trying to really balance those needs between people and nature with, with developing the science and the tools to figure out how to do that well. And one of the things that we started as a kind of a, a collaborative effort here was the development of predictive models, hydrologic models, that can tell us where are the worst places to pump, where are the best places to recharge the aquifer and increase that underground groundwater that supports the flows in the river. Um, and so, frankly, after a couple of decades of, of kind of agreeing on the science and the tools, we started to get a vision for what's the most important thing to do first. Um, and there are a lot of things that we need to do, and we can't do them all right now. But some of the most important things are to keep those flows in the river going uh, in ways that will be beneficial just in the, in the coming years and decades. And, and that includes aquifer recharge projects, which is what the C CCRN, or the, the Cochise Conservation and Recharge Network, really is. When it comes to aquifer recharge projects like this, wells can be dug deeper, but how does recharging the aquifer help the river? Great question. So yes, our wells can go deeper, but uh, the, the wonderful riparian vegetation that creates that lush habitat, their roots can only go so deep. And so what that really means is that our groundwater has to be very shallow near the river to sustain that lush forest and all those habitats. And the only way that that is going to happen, particularly through the really long, dry, hot periods of the year when that habitat needs water the most, is if we can keep that groundwater at a stable level 
And every gallon of water that we pump is one gallon of water that would eventually go to do that very thing. So how do we balance the water that we pump uh, with what, what that whole ecosystem needs? And it's by replenishing the aquifer through recharge projects, as well as minimizing the amount that we pump. Michael, let me ask you, what happens when a river like the San Pedro starts to lose flow because of, be it climate change or the aquifer dropping? It's a really interesting question. We've, we've looked a lot at how species respond, aquatic species respond to the loss of water. And looking across the whole San Pedro Basin, if a river historically would dry up naturally, was part of its, its natural flow regime, then the species we find there have adaptations for surviving that. So they might have a dormant stage where they can survive in the dry sediment for multiple months, and then when the wa water comes back, they pop back to life, they can do fine with it. In a system like the San Pedro, where it naturally and historically had year-round flow, then those species essentially don't have any adaptations for surviving drying. And so when we see formerly perennial streams dry up, we tend to see a pretty big loss in the number of species that it support. The biodiversity goes down quite a bit. You said in the summer especially, um, before the monsoon comes in, San Pedro can be very narrow, but then it can get very wide. What's the minimum that it needs for a lay audience uh, to, to maintain uh, the, the wildlife and the, the system? Right, so I mean, the ideal minimum would be the historical minimum, what it's had before we started taking water out of the system, right? The, the reality is, is that out of the 250 species of aquatic invertebrates that we find there, each one of them has a different need, right? And so as we start to draw down the water, we're gonna lose the most sensitive ones first. They're gonna start to disappear. They need essentially the full amount of water during the dry season. There are you know, plenty of other species that are just fine if there's pools left and there's not flow, but it may be that the species we lose are the ones that the birds and the bats prefer to eat. So that's why we, we you know, really the, the goal is to keep as many of the species in the river that we possibly can, because we don't know all of those connections in that tangled web between the river and the riparian area. How do we account for the needs of the river versus the needs of growth? And I know this is all part of the water adjudication case that is going through court right now. Well, you can look at that in a lot of different ways. You can look at it through the legal framework of the adjudication process. You can look at it through the day-to-day -day way that we manage water as water managers. And I guess I prefer to discuss the second way because <laughs> it's a little bit more tangible to me. <laughs> um, but I do think that it begins with education of every single person who lives in the watershed and how we use water, how it moves through this system, how every glass of water that we drink is in some way connected to the San Pedro River. And I think particularly when, when you don't live near the river per se or you, your other parts of the watershed, that doesn't, you don't think about that. So certainly the water use, the water demand, and making our use as efficient as possible is a really big thing. But also agreeing on the science and how the system works has been super important for really making investments in, in enhancing the supplies here. How do we know how much water we need? How do you, how do you go and measure that? How much water people need? Both people need and the river to be a surviving river system. Um, in some ways, maybe it's easier to answer the river part. Um, right. Because you know, the, how much water people need is a societal decision about what our lives look like on a daily basis. 
Um, it is interesting that nationally, actually, um, the, the individual water use of people throughout the nation has actually been on the decline since the 1980s. And, and people are using less water. And thankfully, that has to do a lot with the kind of appliances we use, I think general education, a lot of factors at play there. But the problem and the flip side of that is, yes, individual people use less water, but there's more people using water. And so what we've done from the aquatic ecology side is basically going out and doing a lot of biodiversity surveys and, and measuring the flow conditions in those sites where we're quantifying the number of species. We did that, for example, across the San Pedro and the Huachucas, across kind of the whole basin here, measured a whole bunch of sites. Some of those streams dried up for nine months out of the year or were dry for more than a year at a time. Others were only dry for a few months at a time and others never dried up, right? And then we can look at the relationship. So if we have sites that dry up nine months out of the year, what kind of species do we find there? How diverse are they? What kind of resources might those species provide for the birds and the bats? And so it takes observation kind of over a longer time scale and a bigger geographic scale to build those, those models. Essentially, we try to build mathematical models that relate the quantity of flow to the types and numbers of species that we found there. And the riparian ecologists do the same thing with mathematical models and trying to create those relationships. And what's so interesting is, of course, that those low flows, particularly the pre-monsoon kind of stress period, is what we focus on as the biggest challenge. But the other thing that's just as important is our flood flows. The cottonwood willow forest requires flood flows for the rejuvenation of the forest and for the germination of those seeds. So the hydrologic regime is, is not as simple as just keep the river flowing. It needs, it needs flood peaks, and it needs base flows, and it needs continuity, and it needs water quality, and there's a lot of dimensions to it, really. So what's the biggest threat to the San Pedro right now? The, well, I'll, I'll, I knew I'd stump him eventually. I'll dive in on that. Um, I, I think, undeniably, it's this stressful base flow pre-monsoon season and trying to sustain those low flows. And that's because that's when it's most groundwater dependent. And that's because we depend on the same groundwater as those low flows. And frankly, what's so interesting about that is I think a lot of people worry about kind of the future growth of, of this area and the water use, how that might diminish groundwater. But frankly, it's the historic use of the groundwater that still hasn't even, those implications haven't hit the river yet and are still to come. So what I worry about at night the most is when those uh, kind of lagged responses of the groundwater system from pumping since 1940 actually reach the river, our very best predictive models tell us that that's going to have a significant impact, even if we didn't pump one more drop of water on the health of the San Pedro River. Those impacts from, from years and decades ago are, are moving towards the river right now. They're invisible. We can't see them. It's hard to understand. But frankly, um, we, we really have a kind of a triage situation to just deal with the historic impacts, let alone the future pumping and use. Yeah, and I think I, I kind of panic about two things, which is first what, what Holly just explained. And then second, the, um, the loss or the reduction of winter rainfall mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. higher temperatures during the winter. And so we're seeing these, uh, this loss of flow in the river during that, that yes. season, that kind of critical season, because it's those winter rainfalls, that winter flow, that kind of helps get us through that dry season, through the bump and into the next monsoon season when the high flows come through again. Absolutely. And so we see a lot of, especially in the headwaters, in the Huachucas and the Whetstone Mountains, we've seen a lot of places 
that used to be perennial, these small little tiny things that are you know, way smaller than San Pedro, little, little stret, um, streams of water have dried up in the last 15 years because of that loss of winter rain. They and don't have any pumping and really are just exactly. examples of climate. Yes. Right, yeah, so it's, so it's essentially the, the climate change um, is the other, Signal, the yeah. one-two punch of pumping and climate change. When we were talking about the uh, conservation and recharge network, mm -hmm. I know that there are basins now that are, are catching stormwater runoff and things like that to help with, with recharge mm -hmm. so we don't lose that. Yep. But stormwater runoff has never been known as the cleanest source of water. Um, how do we deal with that now going into the aquifer, potentially into the river, potentially into the drinking water of all the folks uh, here at the Bisbee Royale? And, and and in the area. Yeah, no, it's definitely a balance between water quality and quantity and how we make these management decisions. And I think there is a big benefit of, it's called soil aquifer treatment, when water goes through that deep soil profile and the cleansing that occurs over distance and time. But you have to be very careful about how much distance and how much time and design your facilities to have that in mind. Um, but really that, that extra runoff, particularly when we build cities and we have all these impervious surfaces like parking lots and rooftops and sidewalks and you know, all that extra water, frankly, is a resource for thinking about aquifer recharge. Like I mentioned before, it's important to have flood flows for the, the ecosystem, but when there's extra water from more runoff, that would best be put in the ground for recharge of the aquifer. Last question for both of you. Looking ahead in your in your crystal balls, what's the future of the San Pedro and the entire area as a result? It's great. It's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a choice there. I mean, this is an irreplaceable ecosystem. And I think at some levels, you know, there's a lot of controversy. There's not enough resources to do all we want as soon as we want. There's still a lot of questions with the science. I could name all kinds of challenges. But I also think that we've done some pretty unprecedented things here to step up to those challenges. And I don't think we're done yet, but I think we're on a path. And I think we have to believe that we can do this. Yeah, and I think the, the scale of the San Pedro really allows for some conversations that don't happen in other places. When we think about the challenges in a system like the Colorado River, it's so massive. There are so many players over such a large area that you really can't have the kind of meaningful dialogues and conversations that move things forward and move us towards a more sustainable future, very easily at least. Whereas in the San Pedro, you can get the county, you can get the ranchers, you can get the developers, you can get the federal land managers, you can get the biologists, and we can all actually fit in a room together. And, and we fight and we have conversations, but we can make some progress towards um, some vision of a future where we still have a river. There's no other choice. That was Holly Richter with the Nature Conservancy and Michael Bogan, an aquatic ecologist. This week we're bringing you a conversation we taped in front of a live audience at the Bisbee Royale Theater. Our focus, the present and future health of the San Pedro River, which exists as both an incredibly valuable and rich riparian ecosystem and as a major local water source in Cochise County. Our second panel featured Scott Feldhausen, Gila District Manager for the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, the agency that oversees the San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area. Sarah Ransom, an attorney who handles water issues for Cochise County, and Michael Gregory, a local grassroots San Pedro River advocate. 
you were involved in getting the San Pedro uh, River National Conservation Area established back in 1988. Uh, you've been at this for a while. Briefly explain how you got the designation and what it means and why you wanted to get that designation. Well, actually, the campaign that we started started quite a bit before 88. It started in the 70s. Uh, several of us who lived in the area here looked at the river, noticed that the Fort Pachuca and the cities around it, uh, especially Sierra Vista, were growing very rapidly. And that it was already known scientifically that there was a problem with the groundwater underneath that area, that the groundwater was being taken out faster than it was going back in. That resulted, as we now know, in what we call a cone of depression, which has been expanding ever since then. It's still expanding. But we decided that we had to do something to save the river. So saving the San Pedro became a campaign amongst local citizens and several national environmental groups. Uh, we originally had wanted to start a campaign to create it as a game refuge under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, that turned out not to be financially feasible, according to the Department of Interior, which controlled the Fish and Wildlife Service and the BLM both. It turns out that BLM said they did have the money. And so the state manager of the BLM uh, sat down with some of us, including Bruce Babbitt, who was governor then, and said, I have a plan that we can turn this into a national conservation area. That was a fairly new designation in those days. What it meant to, the, uh, to Dean Bibles, who was the manager, was that under the National Conservation Area, we could create this system that would be there primarily for protecting the existing biosystem. That would be very different from most BLM-controlled lands. Most BLM-controlled lands were controlled by a law that demands what they call multiple use. The National Conservation Area does not require that. It allows you to say, no, we're not going to have this, we're not going to have that, we're here to preserve, to protect. And so that's what we ended up with. And it was driven by the BLM. They were the ones who came up with that notion. Uh, and most of us said, okay, we can live with that, let's go for it. And that's what we ended up with. I should point out that that was under the Reagan BLM. Uh, we have a different BLM today. And the uh, situation has changed somewhat. But the other situation has not changed. The Sprinca, as we call it, the San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area, was one piece of the puzzle. We never knew, we never thought that was going to save the river. It was going to do a lot, and it has done a lot. But the river, the Kona Depression, is still getting bigger. We have not solved the problem. Scott, let me turn to you. Uh, let's fast forward from 1988 to last month. Um, your agency, your, the district, put out a new management plan that is open for, I believe it's officially called protest, we'll call it final comment, uh, through the 29th of this month. That document's supposed to guide land management in the, the Sprinka for the next 15 to 20 years. What would change under this plan as opposed to the way it has been managed since the 80s? The biggest change is our, as Michael said, in the population growth, you know, that it continue to grow around the area. Um, we talked a lot about the change in the ecology of that landscape. Um, and we talked, we haven't talked really about what the public has wanted. You know, it was set aside for conservation 
and public demands about what that conservation looked like have changed since then, I think, a little bit. Right now, we're trying to set a path for what that future should look like as far as laying out the objectives for managing it into the future. Um, when it was created, Congress gave us some pretty strict guidance, quite different, as Michael said, than our normal public domain lands. Unfortunately, we never really took that next step and worked with the public to say, what does that really look like? Here we are 30 years later trying to do that. And uh, I liken it in many ways to trying to thread a cable through a sewing needle. The public demand um, for the use out there is quite varied. You know, at the public meetings we held, we had great attendance. You'll see, as you see, there's a lot of passion about this landscape. And as a public land manager, I highly value that. Um, having spent my career doing public land management, it scares me to death when people ask the question, what is the value of our public lands? So it's, it's a big challenge, um, and it's not an easy one to answer. There is a lot of perspectives on what conservation looks like and what the uses should be out there. We did the public meetings, we heard everything from, we should graze it like you said you were going to, to there should be no grazing. We should close every road so we can protect it, to we should be able to drive out there and see what we're conserving. We should increase this use versus that use. And so our plan basically tries to assimilate that and figure out how to best implement what Congress told us to do, looking at what the conditions are today. How do you balance all of, all of those competing ideas and needs, especially for an area like uh, Cochise County? As an, a multiple use agency, as Michael said, multiple use and sustained yield. So uses today and into the future, protection today and into the future. Um, we walk that fine line of balance every single day. And no matter where I step on that spectrum, somebody's going to be unhappy and think I should be somewhere else. Um, so it's challenged. So we have listened to the scientists, we listened to the public, we tried to do our best to figure out how to interpret what Congress really asked for versus what the public is asking for today and still meet that long-term need. I know that we didn't make everybody happy, but I feel pretty good that we did a good job of at least listening to the community about what they were asking for out there. And again, that community is very diverse and broad. Michael, you were there at the beginning Everybody knows plans like this don't make everybody happy. From your standpoint, since you're representing a lot of the people in this room here, is the plan that's been put forward awful, acceptable, not bad, the greatest thing ever? Do I have to play to my public? <laughs> no, no you, can, no, you can answer honestly. <laughs> no, as Scott knows, I'm not at all happy with the plan. Uh, I think that the, uh, what I call the Trump BLM has a very different notion about what a national conservation area is. The concept of grazing on the Sprinka, I think, is totally against what we wrote into the legislation. There are other problems that, uh, that are in there. It looks to me like what is going on in the current plan is what's going on with Department of Interior properties all over the country. There has been a directive come down from Washington saying you will use these lands to the maximum extent possible. You will get resources used. You will make commodities out of the things on these lands. That is coming from Washington directly. The local people can't argue with that very much. And that to me is directly contrary to the legislation. The legislation said not you will use, but you will protect. And that's very different. Sarah, we haven't come to you on this yet, but what's the county's role in all of this? I am coming as a county employee. I'm not speaking for the county. I'm, right. I'm you know, th these are based upon my experiences. But the 
act and the designation of the Sprinca actually had nine purposes. Um, it wasn't only to conserve. It was, in fact, to provide recreation, education, cultural resources, um, preserve riparian and aquatic resources. There's, there's more. I'm obviously not able to rattle them all off the top of my head. And so Mr. Feldhausen, he, he does have these competing interests and, and these challenges that he must balance. I mean, that's what's required of him. And I think that the BLM did a very good job of listening to the community. And I do think that the local voices um, have been heard and what the resource management plan provides is a broad array and a suite of options so that we can move forward work together cooperatively, continue communicating and progressing on the positive trajectory that we've already put in place. And um, we are talking about population growth and demand. Well, population growth in recent years has actually stalled in the Cochise County area and the Sierra Vista subwatershed. We aren't growing. The economic meltdown really hit this area and we are projected not to grow like Tucson or like Phoenix. Out into the future, a 0.8% population growth is what we are modeling, and, and that's probably optimistic. And so while we're in this position where we're not dealing with rapid growth, we have been able to put a lot of conservation measures in place. This recharge network is, is one of multiple areas that we are focused on as a community so that we can attempt to use water more wisely. And then being able to work with the BLM and other community leaders like Mr. Gregory, I think we have this wonderful opportunity to save the river while we can continue to grow responsibly. So I, and I think that the BLM in, in listening to its cooperating agencies, the Cochise County being one of them, um, Sierra Vista being another one, Friends of the San Pedro being another one, has furthered that goal. Last year, the Arizona Supreme Court made a decision that allowed a 7,000 home uh, development called Tribute to go forward saying there was a 100-year water supply. A lot of people argue with that. One of the plaintiffs in that case was the BLM. Um, how do you balance that Tribute decision, which was very controversial, we came down, did one of our first shows on it, as a matter of fact, with the new plan that the BLM has put forward for the San Pedro? That's a, a challenge. Um, from our perspective, the court made a decision and we have to adhere with it. Um, the court will make another decision at some point on the rest of the Gila River adjudication, uh, which includes the Federal Reserve water right for the San Pedro. And we will live with that, whatever it is, um, at some point. Our plan right now is sets objectives for what we believe the landscape, how it should look ecologically moving into the future. Um, if the court decides we don't get any water, maybe we're doing another plan. But then I don't think that that's gonna happen. But our plan isn't set around the water rights. Our plan manages the resources on the Sprinka. When it comes to, we're now in I believe our third lawsuit discussion here uh, this evening, uh, the, the amount of water that the BLM wants to see on the San Pedro, um, can you discuss that litigation? I know it's ongoing litigation, but can you discuss it a little bit just to fill the audience in both here at the Bisbee Royale and our listeners? Uh, the basics of it are that when Congress enacted the legislation to create the Sprinka, they said we should have a water right sufficient to sustain those resources. 
How we get that in the state of Arizona is through a water rights adjudication process that's been ongoing for 40 years, approximately. Um, no end in sight. And we applied for the amount of water the scientists told us was necessary to meet the requirements that your previous panelists talked about for the riparian ecology, the fish, the species, all that. And Sarah, now the county's got to balance that with things like tribute and other growth. Um, is that correct? Um, or? No, in fact, the, the way the adjudication works is the judge will decide how much water BLM needs to fulfill the purposes of the reservation. The standard is minimal need for a federal reserved right because federal reserved rights really trump everyone around them. And so as, as far as what everyone around the Sprinka needs, the judge is not interested in that. Um, what is happening around the Sprinka may impact the amount of water in the river, so it's relevant what the community is doing to support the river. Um, and the community is doing an awful lot to support the river and has been thanks to the foresight of a lot of our scientists and officials for 20 plus years. But the judge will determine based upon the evidence, the, um, the minimal need necessary to fulfill the nine purposes of the act. This brings up what I think is a larger point than we've been talking about so far. The main problem is we're taking out too much water. We are overdrafting the water. We have been since the 40s. And it gets worse. That Kona depression is growing. What are we doing to address that problem? Basically nothing. Everything that we've been doing in terms of conservation, to use your term, Sarah, is addressed to symptoms, not to that cause. We have let too many people draw out too much water from that valley. We're not addressing that problem because both the state and the county have been run by a pro-growth ideology for decades. More people are never told no. We always invite them in. That means they're going to use more water. That policy has to stop. I respectfully disagree. Certainly we are tasked with addressing the excesses of the past that Ms. Richter alluded to. We do have a situation where agriculture resulted in very, very significant pumping up through the 40s and 50s, and that is still progressing towards the river. But the community, um, by necessity, because water is a great unifier, and so we have, where in other places nobody's going to get into a room together, we have been able to get into a room together with federal agencies, state agencies, and local agencies, and talk about conservation for some time. And that has made an absolute impact on the way we function, the way we use water, and the state of our aquifer. Um, even as, as recently as 2017, the USGS's most recent uh, report on sustainable groundwater indicated that we're within the margin of error as far as our withdrawals. And that's something that the community had to work on together. That's something that education results in progress. And we were 20 years ago withdrawing at a deficit of approximately 14,000 acre-feet per year. The USGS report from 27, 2017, which is based on 2012 numbers, put us at an estimate of 5,000 acre-feet per year deficit of withdrawals. That's within the margin of error, which is 5,500 acre-feet. And that 2012 figure doesn't include a very significant number of projects that the local community has engaged in since, um, one of them being the Cochise Water Project. 
that was focused in the Sierra Vista area did basic things like low flow toilets, artificial turf. Uh, most significantly, it encouraged our golf courses to use smart water sensing and in only six short years resulted in 1,300 acre feet of savings per year in the Sierra Vista sub watershed. And that will continue out into the future. And so when we talk about a, a deficit, we're not even counting things like that 1,300 acre feet of savings that's going to persist into the future. Um, and those savings have, in just that six years, made it possible for the community when we do these recharge projects to utilize the excess water to recharge it nearer to the river, to build a groundwater mound around the river so that that cone of depression, when it hits, will take from the groundwater mound. So we are actively protecting the river with these recharge projects. And our modeling that Ms. Richter talked about, our modeling indicates that at these areas where we're putting these recharge projects in place, if they are successful and we're able to build them all, and we've already built several and we're going to continue, um, they will sustain flows out to the year 2105 at 2003 base flow levels. And that's not the only thing we want to do. Everybody acknowledges we need to do more. We absolutely need to continue as a community on this positive you know, trajectory. But that helps us buy time to where we can learn to improve our water use techniques, where we can implement um, some of the regulatory policies that uh, City of Bisbee and Cochise County have put in place, things like adopting EPA water sense standards, adopting adequate water supply requirements, these other regulatory changes that, we've, that will help us as we move forward in saving significant amounts of water. We're really a local success story. Let me circle back on something you said. You're trying to build a, a groundwater mound near the river so when the cone of depression reaches it, so you're planning that the cone of depression will reach it, which means you're planning on pumping a deficit, correct? No. The cone of depression exists based upon agricultural pumping from decades ago. Um, and it would continue, it will continue to expand until we level it by filling it. What we do annually as we reach this area, when I'm talking about if we hit a zero deficit, what we want to do now is to accrete. We want to add into the aquifer, which would ultimately destroy the cone of depression. Um, and so because water moves slowly and humans have a short lifespan compared to the way water moves, um, we have to work together as a community to and do an awful lot of work. And it's going to take an awful lot of time to undo the excesses of the past. But doing these recharge projects buys us time to, to do that. And we have the ability to do that. But Sarah, we're still taking out more than we're putting in, right? Not necessarily. We are, in, we are within the mar margin of error, according to the USGS. Especially for our radio audience, somebody, somebody said that's the plus side, but there is a minus side on a margin of error. So Cochise County could still be taking a deficit then, a, a significant deficit, potentially. I think based upon the work that we're doing, that the likelihood that, that it's the more dire projection is low, especially when you also consider that per capita water use is down, again, due to education, and population growth is, is not high. We're actually at the same level of population in the Sierra Vista sub-watershed, which is the area that we're talking about, not the entirety of Cochise County. Um, we're at the same population that we were 10 years ago. As we wrap this section up, um, question for all of you 
Arizona really doesn't regulate groundwater except in a few areas. Do you think there needs to be some groundwater management here in this area? I think that whatever we do, this discussion was a really good example of the need to have everybody at the table to find the solution, whether it's a regulated management or a less regulated process of developing a water budget and figuring out how to implement. Now the Sprinka, the conservation area, sits at the bottom of the drain. It's totally surrounded by everybody else. So the ability of the agency to manage what happens to it is very challenging. That's why we're at the table with TNC and the other partners, why we've invited the county and other players to the table to talk to us too, to try to figure out how to manage cooperatively in that basin. And we're gonna to continue to do. The RMP is just the first step in setting the stage for moving forward and looking at the health of that landscape. Now it's time to figure out how to implement that and how we're gonna to work together to actually achieve what we all want, which is a healthy and functioning river system. We saw recently um, the Colorado River Basin states after a lot of discussions, we shall say, came up with a drought contingency plan that's run by the states. Michael, would you like to see that happen here and to keep the state and the feds out of it, let the local, you know? Absolutely and... not. Okay. <laughs> okay. I spent many years after we started working on saving the San Pedro in one committee after another that was created here locally to prevent state management of the water. When the Groundwater Act was passed in 1980, we, some of us pushed for getting what they call an active management area in the San, San Sierra Vista area. That was actively opposed by the development interests in the county, including, of course, the water companies, especially the developers and so forth, and I, and I might say the county itself. The active management area seems to me to be a good idea. I think we should go back and revisit that. That's still a possibility for bringing in some state controls in, on the San Pedro. There's another level of the state problem that I think needs to be addressed. Um, this goes back to the tribute plan that you were talking about. One of the big issues in that is that there is not a state law, but a state policy that basically says groundwater is not connected to surface water. Well, that's absurd. And almost everybody in the world knows that. Arizona, when you bring that up in meetings at the UN level or the national level, we get laughed at. You know, everybody knows that. That needs to be changed. We need to change that policy. Sarah, do you want to jump in last word on this? It's not a policy, it's, it's precedent. Um, and it's unfortunate. I, I, I agree with Mr. Gregory that obviously hydrological realities are not what legally our Arizona Supreme Court has elected to stick with. And so we, we function within this legal fiction that groundwater and surface water are not connected. And then we've got this uh, concept of subflow, which is surface water. And then we want to treat effluent differently. And, and we have um, a complicated legal metrics when it comes to water. Uh, with the Sprinka and the Federal Reserve right, that goes away um, somewhat because federal uh, water law does not acknowledge the distinction and our courts have stated that when you, if you have a federal reserved right, you can um, stop groundwater pumping. It's actually a bit of a check on our reasonable use standard that we otherwise apply in this area that isn't subject to an active management area. Of course, the BLM will have to demonstrate that it's entitled to a federal reserved groundwater right, and that is one of the things that's at issue currently in the adjudication. That was Scott Feldhausen of the Bureau of Land Management, Cochise County Attorney Sarah Ransom, and grassroots San Pedro River advocate Michael Gregory. 
You've been listening to a special episode of The Buzz focused on the San Pedro River, taped in front of a live audience at the Bisbee Royale Theater. Find more information about some of the San Pedro subjects discussed today in the show notes, and you can hear an extended version of this conversation on our podcast feed. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show, thanks to AZPM production crew Denny Warders, Trey Diston, Matt Parkwardowski, and Bob Lindbergh. Special thanks to the Bisbee Royale Theater and Etta Kralovec with the Bisbee Science Lab. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Andrea Kelly is the news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.